Now hear the word of the Lord from John 10, 40 through eleven fifty four. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, my name is Scott, and I'm the director of operations here at Sacred City. Uh, I don't know about y'all. Anybody here uh, really enjoying our tour through the Gospel of John so far? Uh, I've been loving it. Uh, I hope you are too. Uh, and here's the deal. I got to get right after it because you already heard Joshua said we've been going a little bit long maybe, huh? So here, here we go. Uh, this is the conversation that we're stepping into from last week. Uh, Pastor Justin led us through the second half of John chapter 10 where this conversation happened. John chapter 10 verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, this is what the people around Jesus are asking him. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here's the deal, church. 
These people have been asking who Jesus is, right? Uh, These people have been asking about Jesus' identity. And he's like, I told you. And he says, I have done these works. Let my works speak for themselves. And the Gospel of John has a way of laying this out, right? It's my favorite book in the Bible. I ain't going to hold that back from you, okay? Because John tells us straight. I love a dude that will tell me something straight. You know what I mean? He says that the reason that he wrote this book is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might find life in his name. And then he lays it out for us. These are the works that Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. And up to this point, if if you've been tracking with us, we've seen that Jesus made water into wine, that Jesus cleansed the temple, that Jesus healed the royal official's son, that he healed a man who couldn't even walk. He fed 5,000 people with a kid's sack lunch. And he made a man who was born blind able to see. That's what we've seen up until this point. And so last week, when Justin stepped into that conversation, he's like, I told you, and I have done these works. He's done some works. And on his resume, folks, are things that could only be on God's resume. There ain't nobody else that could have done the things that Jesus has done up to this point. But here's the deal. It gets even better. And that's where I'm at this morning. Today, we're going to look at a text that tells us Jesus speaks to a dead man wrapped up like a mummy in a tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And the amazing thing is this dude does it. He was dead and he walks out alive out of that tomb. But here's the deal. We're going to be looking at a text like that. And I think sometimes we just walk right into things without preparing our hearts. And so this morning, I want to take some time to prepare our hearts before we walk into that text. So we're going to start with the gardening illustration, okay? And this is one that many of us are probably familiar with. It's from the Bible, right? Let's say that we had the best seeds in the world that we were going to plant in our garden. Okay, you got the best seeds. I don't know where you went. You went and found a farmer, and this farmer, he grew some great stuff, and he gave you all of his best seed, and you're taking it out, and you're ready to sow those seeds in your garden. But let's say that the soil in your garden is rank. It's bad soil. You sow those seeds, really great seeds, awesome seeds, top-of-the-line seeds, and you sow them in that soil. What's going to happen, church? Yeah, not a whole lot of anything, right? It's not going to grow very well, and you're not going to get much fruit from those seeds. And so here's the deal. This morning, let me tell you what I mean to say. Before I go sowing resurrection, truth, seeds in our hearts, I want to talk about the soil in our hearts that those seeds are going to get sown in. It just so happens that I think the people in John chapter 11 have some of the same problems in the soil of their hearts that I see in my own heart and I think are probably in many of our hearts this morning. Uh, so here's how we're going to do this as we prepare our hearts this morning. Can I let you behind the curtain a little bit? Y'all like being let behind the curtain. I love it when somebody that's been doing something for a while kind of lets you behind the curtain. Well, one of the best books that I've ever read on preaching is called Christ-Centered Preaching by Brian Chapel. Okay, this is a great dude. Okay, Brian Chapel is a great dude. I took his preaching class uh, back in the day. Uh, he even spoke at uh, Porterbrook here one time, right? Uh, here's the deal. He was supposed to be there the year that I did year two at Porterbrook, but then COVID. All right. So I was really looking forward to hearing from this brother. Uh, and then I digress. Anyway, that's COVID's fault, right? Uh, so here's the deal. My wife got to hear from him the next year. It was fine. You know what I mean? But I didn't. 
that time. But here's the deal. Uh, Brian Chappell, he wrote this book, Christ-Centered Preaching, and I think that the best thing in his book, the money in his book, comes down to one simple principle. He calls it the falling condition focus. The falling condition focus. Preachers call it the FCF, and here's the deal. The falling condition focus, this is gonna be really heady, but I'll help explain it, is the mutual condition that contemporary believers share with those or, to, or about whom the text was written that requires the grace of the passage for God's people to glorify him and enjoy him. It's this overlap, okay? In, in studying a text, if you're gonna find the falling condition focus, you're trying to find the overlap between the, the fallenness in the people in the text or the readers of the text with our world today you're trying to find that overlap and then bring the grace of that passage, the grace of God in that passage to bear on our hearts so that we could glorify him and enjoy him forever, okay? Well, here's the deal. The reason I tell you all that is because I think that John chapter 11 hits us right where our soil is. Here in John chapter 11, we see people coming face to face with illness and death. And what we learn is that they definitely have a different perspective than Jesus. When you see that differing of perspectives between the people in the text and Jesus, that's a good idea to look there for that fallen condition, okay? These people's perspective, it's clouded by unbelief. Their perspective is limited because they're looking at things through a finite human lens, and their perspective is skewed because they have a lack of familiarity for what makes for a really good story, all right? Did y'all know that uh, there's a part of each one of our stories that's, that's the same? I don't mean just similar, you know, like, uh, hey, uh, you're like, same, bro, you know, like, no. I mean, uh, a part of our stories for each and every one of us that is the same. The part of the story uh, for each one of us that's the same is our human backstory, Think about this with me. Like they say in the Chronicles of Narnia, each and every one of us is sons of Adam or daughters of Eve, right? Y'all with me? Uh, man, if you don't like Chronicles of Narnia, we got some work to do this morning, all right? Uh, but uh, that's true of each and every one of us. We all come from a father and a mother who back in the day lived in the Garden of Eden and fell from perfection. Everything in the garden was literally perfect. And then Satan came in the form of a snake and he told this horrible lie. Maybe y'all know that story. The, the worst part is that Eve believed the lie and Adam passively stood by and they fell from perfection. And as a result of that fall, the human soul longs for perfection. I think that the fallen condition focus in today's text is at this intersection. It's at the intersection of the human longing for perfection and the temporary realities that are a result of the fall from perfection. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We long, each and every one, I think, longs to be in a world where all people in our world have all that they need in a lush garden. But we live in a world stricken by poverty. We long for everybody, us and everybody around us, to be healthy, but we temporarily live in a world with things like cancer. We long for the abundant life, right, uh, to be the case all around us. But it seems like there's death here and there scattered around us. One of the things I've been thinking about as I've studied this text is that many of us have this tendency when we run into the temporary realities in our world that are a result of Adam and Eve's fall from perfection, right? Like we bump into cancer and we say, cancer sucks. This is definitely not the way that things are supposed to be. 
And then we go on with our day. Right? We run into, uh, like, poverty, and, and we bump into it, and we complain about it. Don't get me wrong. We're good at complaining about it. But then we don't flip the page. Okay? For, for some of us, we run into death, and, and we say things, cute things, like, man, my, my grandpa's going to be up in heaven. I hope to see him again someday. But then we don't keep reading the story and understand who the author of that story is is. You see, what I want each one of us to consider this morning as we dive into this text is that when we don't turn the page, we like kind of kill our hope. When we don't turn the page, the soil in our hearts is like the soil on a path that's getting trampled down day after day because of the brokenness of the world around us and us not taking the time to have God till up the soil so that it would be soft, so that the seeds of resurrection hope can be sown in it over and over again. You see, I think that for us, when we hit, when we hit things like disease and death and, and the like, the soil in our hearts gets trampled down because we fail to turn the page. But the truth is, we're on, our way, we're on our way to something better than Eden. We have a savior, a hero, who stepped down into this broken world and obediently endured the broken realities that we are facing. And as a result, we should have hope, the hope of glory. And so this morning, I'm hoping to breathe hope into our lives. I think God wants each one of us to hear the resurrection is much more than just an event that happens in the future. It is a person. And if it's true, if that's true, then that person changes everything for our lives, especially these moments when we deal with the temporary realities of the fall, things like death and disease. My sermon title this morning is Resurrection is a Person and His Name is Jesus. Will you all pray with me? God, we ask that you would meet us here this morning. Nobody here came to hear from a dude this morning. We came to hear from God. And so, God, would you do the work? Would you do it both in my heart and in my mouth this morning? Would you speak through me? But would you also do it in each and every one of our hearts? Would you uh, soften our hearts? Would you unstop our ears? Would you help us to see you clearly and enable us to live out your word in our lives as we go from this place? God, we ask you specifically to till up the unbelief in our hearts this morning that we would encounter Jesus, the resurrection, and the life, and we would encounter you in a profound way. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's get after it. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 40 is where I am beginning. He went away again, Jesus, right, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, Jesus, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill." And we'll pause there for a second. Y'all, before we even get started in this text, we got to realize that the most striking miracle in all of John's gospel is told in the most plain, matter-of-fact style. You see that? 
These verses are filled with geography. They're filled with names, and they're filled with corroborating events. I know there's people out there in, in our city, at least there was in Iowa City where I come from, and these people are telling you garbage like the historical Jesus never really existed, right? All of this is, is just a myth or a legend. Well, why is it that this doesn't read like a myth or a legend then? Right? This is firsthand eyewitness stuff that we see around an event that is a really big deal in John's gospel. You see what happened in John chapter 9 is Jesus healed a blind man, and then there's this conversation that follows. And after that conversation finishes, Jesus crosses the Jordan River. By the way, that's a real river that exists. It's a real place that still exists today, and that's where they go. Oh, that doesn't sound like a legend or a myth. And then uh, there's a man named Lazarus, right? And uh, in between there, right, like the place on, sorry, I got to go back here. You got to get this one. The place that they go to on the river is a really well-known spot, right? They go to this spot where John had been baptizing. By the way, this is the most famous preacher in Jesus' day, right? He's the one that set the stage. So lots and lots of people know about that exact spot, Again, we got a corroborating event. This isn't myth or legend. This is what happens here. And so they go to that spot where this famous dude named John had been baptizing a ton of people, and a lot of people believed, right? Because John had sowed some seed, and that's, that's a good place for them to grow up. My guess is that that's the place where John got his nickname, right? Uh, y'all, we talked about this last week. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. The Baptist isn't John's, all right? So my guess is that's a spot where maybe he got that, that title, right? John the Baptist, Johnny B, whatever you want to call him, right? <laughs> Jesus goes there to that real spot where a real dude had been baptizing a lot of people. And then Lazarus is introduced. And the author tells us, what what's he tells us? Oh, he tells us his hometown and his two sisters' names. These are details that you'd write out if you're writing, uh, writing a myth because people are going to come back and they're going to check out that hometown and they're going to find out, was there anybody ever na- lived here named Lazarus? Did he have two sisters, Mary and Martha? This is real firsthand eyewitness stuff. This is not a myth, folks. And just in case you forgot, the author tells us about another significant moment, another corroborating event, and it's when his sister actually like wet Jesus' feet with her tears and washed his feet with her hair. Like this is the kind of thing that people remember and they go back and check out. This is not a legend. This is firsthand eyewitness stuff. It's as if, you know, this was my dream job as a kid. Uh, You got to sit courtside at all the games in the reporter's section and your job was to watch the game and then afterwards you wrote something and you send it out. This dude was courtside for some of the biggest moments in Jesus' life, and he is just telling us what he saw. I'm going to keep moving on, but you got to promise me you're not going to log this story in the fiction section of your brains. This is going straight up in the nonfiction. Amen? All right, here we go. we got to keep going because we got a lot of business to do. Uh, John chapter 11, verse 3 is where we pick back up. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That sound like anything we know? Yeah, it sounds like the the whole purpose that John wrote this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's a whole verse there just to tell us that Jesus loved this family a whole lot, all right? Notice that. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You see what happened right there? 
Mary and Martha, they know Jesus. They know him intimately. There's a, a lot of relationship that's been happening. This seems like it's one of those homes that when Jesus passes by, he stays there. Uh, that's the place that he lays his head. They take care of his needs. There's deep relationships with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They knew Jesus. They know that he's awesome. It's really clear in our whole text this morning. They know that he could even have healed their brother no matter what uh, if he would have showed up, right? So the sisters... They sent Jesus a message over there at the Jordan River, uh, reminding him how much he loves their brother (laughs) and letting him know that Lazarus is ill. Remember, uh, as you're thinking about how this is written, that our reporter that was sitting courtside, John, right, the author of this firsthand eyewitness account, he called himself, what did he call himself in John's gospel? The disciple Jesus loved. So if he knows what it means to be on the inside scoop with Jesus, uh, this is the dude. And so he set aside a verse here to be like, these people, they're on the inside with Jesus too. He, this is not just like Jesus loves all of us, right? Like Jesus really loves these people. They are his people. Not that that's any different than you and me, okay? But these, these are his people, okay? This is one of those kind of nudges from the sisters. They, they put out a prayer to Jesus. You, you could do something about this, right? Jesus, you could heal my brother. But then Jesus, what's he do? He stays right where he is at for like two more days. Jesus stays, do you catch that? Two days longer at the spot along the Jordan River before even taking a step in Lazarus' direction. And most of us, if we're honest, right, have somewhat of a negative reaction to that decision. That, that, that feels cold to us. And the thing is, I think each and every one of us have been in a spot kind of like Mary and Martha are in right here. We've been in a spot where we sent a prayer out to Jesus. Uh, We told him about our situation. We reminded him how much he loves us, right? And uh, we expected that we were going to get from him an answer that he would do what we asked him to do when we asked him to do it, right? Well, why is it? Then when we hear that Jesus stayed two days longer after he heard about Lazarus and his illness, that we think that Jesus was cold. You see, this story and the way that we respond when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, I think reveals the skewed perspective that many of us have regarding prayer. Can we get into that? I'm going to anyway, even if you said no. You see, many of us think about prayer like a divine vending machine. We think that if you put in the right amount of money and you push the right buttons uh, and that you ask nicely, and if you don't get what you want right away, you give it a little hip check, you know what I mean, to get that Snickers bar dropping down there. We think that if you do all of those things, you're going to get what you want, when you want it, from God. Isn't that what we think? I think if we were honest, that's kind of what we think. But there's a couple of things drastically wrong with this perspective. Namely, the truth that God is God and you are not. Amen? Sacred City, think about what's going on in our heads and our hearts when we allow our emotions to get all agitated because God didn't give us what we wanted when we wanted it. You see, in our heads, we think that we know what's best for us, don't we? And in our hearts, we believe that God should just give us what we want. But neither of those things are in line with reality. The truth is that God is infinite and we are finite. God is big and we are small. God is all sovereign and wise. And by the way, we're not. You see, we need to put that in our pipes 
and smoke it before we allow our hearts to go through this spin cycle of agitation when we don't get what we want the next time. Because Jesus is always writing a better story than we could ask or imagine, church. Have you ever stopped to ask yourselves why it is that so many great authors write resurrection stories? Y'all, why is it that J.K. Rowling would take our beloved Harry Potter and make him die before he pulls out some resurrection stone? Oh, I wonder. Why is it that we would have to watch Aslan? Our be- I mean, when I say beloved, that's a whole different thing than Harry Potter, right? When we would watch Aslan, our beloved, go up to that stone tablet, and he would, oh gosh, it just irks me thinking about it a little bit, and he'd have to have his mane shaved off, and he'd have to go through all that he went through and die before he would be raised again the next day or a few days later, you know, however that happens. Why is it that we would have to watch Gandalf, right? Why would J.R. Tolkien do this to us? Watch Gandalf say, you shall not pass. But then he goes down into the pit fighting that fiery monster before he would ever be raised up again. Not Gandalf the Grey anymore, but Gandalf the White. Why is it that the best authors write resurrection stories? Well, let me tell you. It's because the author of life wrote the best story, and resurrection is right at the center of that story. It is the most climactic thing that has happened in the grand story of redemption, and people see that, and they know that makes for a great story. Y'all, when we pray, we need to consider that the awesome stories that the author of life is writing in and through our lives, sometimes they pass through a valley before you're headed up to a mountaintop. When we pray, we need to understand what the ESV study Bible calls the discipline of delay. Do y'all know this? This is a hard one for us to learn. Mary and Martha, they reached out to Jesus. You know what Jesus did? He intentionally delayed. Y'all, we don't like delay in our lives. We want to get on with things. We don't want to wait for anything, but he's trying to teach us something in those moments. Y'all, what if, what if when we're delayed, we don't get all agitated? What if instead we got amped up? Because we saw him as the author of life and we realized there's a good chance we're about to turn the page on a really amazing part of the story. If we're going through the valley right now or we encounter death right now or we encounter disease right now, that there must be something coming on the other end of that story that God is going to get a whole lot of glory and we're going to see what he does. Because this is true of a lot of the story that he is writing. You see, one of the lessons that I'm sure some of the more seasoned Christians in the room could teach us is that the more that we walk with Jesus, the more that we accept God's ways are so much higher than our ways. And his ways will work out for his glory and our good much more often than our ways ever could. Amen? All right, we gotta keep going. I got amped up a little bit right there. Here we go. Uh, Let's pick back up in verse seven. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. He's the light of the world, by the way. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. 
He's just going to wake back up, right? Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly. Y'all, I love it when Jesus tells us plainly. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Y'all, the disciples, they look at Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you know what neighborhood Lazarus lives in, right? Uh, And you know what happens when we're going to go back to that neighborhood. This is the place where all the religious leaders, they are done fed up with you, Jesus. They are ready to kill you. And Jesus talks to his disciples about walking in the day and walking in the light and and the night. And and we must remember that Jesus is the light of the world. So to the average man back then, right, uh, when did they do their work? They started their work when the light came up, right? When the sun came up in the morning, they stopped their work when the sun went down, right? So uh, for them, the walking in the day, this means this is when I do my work. Not in the nighttime, I do it in the daytime. Well, what's Jesus' work? Jesus' work is to do the will of his Father, right? And so if the will of his Father is for him to head back to Bethany in Judea and to heal, uh, actually not to heal, but to raise Lazarus up from the dead, then he's going to go and do that, even if that means a great risk on his life. You see, the other thing that I want us to notice in these verses is how Jesus tells the disciples plainly, right? I told you, I love it when Jesus tells me plainly. I ain't the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? Uh, Y'all learn that about me if you get to know me a little bit. I just ain't the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. I can keep going on and on. This is not me. And so I need Jesus to shoot straight with me. I need him to tell me plainly, and this is what he does right here. He says, hey, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, that you may believe. Jesus tells us plainly. He says, Lazarus, he, thought, he said earlier, Lazarus had fallen asleep, and, and I go to awaken him, and they misunderstand him. And so he's like, hey, when I said fall asleep, I meant like the way that we today in our vernacular talk about passing away, right? Jesus says plainly, Lazarus has died. That's not the only thing that Jesus makes plain. What he makes plain here on top of that is his motivation, which is what I want to get into here. He says to his disciples that part of his motive in waiting is so that they may believe. Sacred City Church, Jesus knows that one of the results of living in a sinful and a broken world can be hardness of heart. Go back to what I was saying at the beginning of this sermon. When we don't turn the page after an encounter with death, when we don't keep reading the story, that God is writing when disease hits us in the face, or when we don't take the time to process when we have a run-in with poverty, one of the results is that the soil in our hearts, it can get packed in like dirt under a path and get trampled down. But God, God loves us too much to let us stay beat down. And, and, and like the disciples this morning, he brings each and every one of us who struggles with unbelief along for the ride. Here it is, so that we may believe. Y'all might be asking right now, uh, what in the heck does this story about, a, about Jesus raising a man named Lazarus from the dead have to do with me this morning? Well, let me tell you right now. One reason this story is right here is so that Jesus' disciples, that means Jesus' followers, that means people like you and me could have a front seat to all of him. Remember, John wrote this gospel so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might find life in his name. Right here, right now, before we even jump into the meat of this story, you need to see that he brought us to this moment to drink in life in his name. 
We need to repent of our unbelief this morning and ask God right here, right now to renew and strengthen our faith because this is what he's doing. He wants to grow our faith because belief and hope are of the utmost importance for any of us who wants to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's keep going. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They're like, they get what's going down here. Uh, and so Thomas like shouts out like that. And Jesus just lets it pass, I think. It's like, it's, a, it's good. I, do, I, I think he just lets that one pass. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, amen, brother. (laughs) Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Y'all, we got to see what's happening in this conversation. Because, yes, there is a conversation happening here between Jesus and and Martha, but Jesus is not only addressing Martha here personally, he's at the same time addressing the prevailing religious thought about resurrection in the day. The prevailing religious thought about resurrection in the day is that resurrection is something that happens a far off time, and that in the end, we will all be resurrected uh, with him. And in doing so, when he's addressing that thought, Jesus tells both Martha and the religious people of the day that the resurrection that they're looking for, it's not an event in the future. The resurrection they're looking for is a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus essentially says the power that's going to be at work in the future resurrection that you're thinking about, that power is standing right here in front of you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Church, we need to pause for a moment right there. There's a thing that happens with this idea of death and resurrection that we do. Not just because we have the same theology as Martha. Many of us, I think, uh, I'm talking to everybody that doesn't have uh, kids that went off and are are living their life already, okay? If you're an empty nester or older, you can tune me out here. But all the rest of us, okay, when we run into the idea of death and resurrection, we just think that we're untouchable. We've got this perspective that's like, oh, you know, most of the days we go throughout our life, we think of ourselves as untouchable, and these idea, these truths about Jesus being the resurrection and the life, they don't sit in enough because death isn't a part of our everyday vernacular. We think that we're untouchable. But that's not the case for Martha here, and I want you to see that. Martha just lived through her brother's funeral. Dude's been dead for four days in this tomb. Death is Real. It is in the front stage of her life right now. And we would do well to sit in that reality for a moment and realize that the scripture say man's destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But then we got to turn the page. Okay, We just can't stay right there. We got to turn the page because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We can experience eternal life through belief in him. God has seen fit for us who believe in him to live forever, not on the basis of our own merits, 
or even because we think that we're something, we're clever, or we're great, whatever. No, but on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus' power to raise Lazarus from the dead is not only that, but it's the same power that raised him from the dead a little bit long, or a little ways after this, and it's the same power that lives in you and me if we have the Spirit of God in us. The implications of the resurrection have an incredible reach in our lives. They go far beyond us receiving eternal life. If we believe that Jesus, raising from the dead, if, the, if he did that and that same power lives in us by the Spirit, this is our hope. The resurrection is our hope to conquer sin. The resurrection is our hope for freedom in Christ. The resurrection is our hope to truly love as Jesus loved. And so here's the deal. I want to take this home for us in our lives. If you feel backed into some hopeless corner in your life right now, maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you got kicked out of the house and your wife hasn't let you back in yet. Maybe uh, you recently experienced the death of a loved one. And, and this one's different. It's really hitting home with you. Uh, maybe you lost your job. Well, you need to know that there's hope. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then death doesn't have to be the end of the story. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then there is hope for your marriage. If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then you must have hope about the next chapter of your vocational story. Notice something with me here. Martha was pretty spot on in her belief that Jesus could ask whatever he wished from the Father and he would do it. That's actually what ends up happening in a few minutes after this conversation. But Jesus dials in with Martha and he asks her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? This encourages me because through this question, Jesus reminds me that belief in God or our belief in the gospel, it's not a one-time thing, right? Martha clearly believed in Jesus, right? She had some good uh, theology actually about what he could do for her. But he looks her in the eyes knowing that she already believed him in him. And she says, do you believe me? Because this is what happens for us as we mature in our faith. Uh, our, our belief is not a one-time thing. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. We need to believe the gospel deeper and in new areas of our life as we go throughout our journey with Christ. And I wonder what you're going through this morning. And I wonder if Jesus isn't looking you in the eyes in the midst of that situation you're in and losing your job or in losing a loved one or whatever it might be and saying, hey, do you believe? We need the gospel to set in in this part of your life. I wonder, do you believe that you are having a face-to-face -face encounter with the son of God this morning and that he wants to give you abundant life in his name? All right, we got to keep reading, right? Let's go. Verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That sounds very similar. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. 
And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Yeah, he could have. Yep, that's the answer to that question. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Y'all, this week I walked into a conversation with a friend thinking I was going to ask about a task. But when I looked up and I paid attention to what was going on with this friend and I saw tears in my friend's eyes, I realized I was walking into a different kind of conversation. And I asked, are you okay? And I started to feel some of the things that were going on in my friend's heart. I want you to think, recent, think about a recent encounter you've had with a friend who told you something. Maybe they told you through tears in their eyes. Maybe you felt compassion. Maybe you cried with them. Maybe you were angry at the person responsible for whatever was going on in their life. Maybe you said something like, man, I wish I could, I could make all that go away for you. Now I want you to think about this scene from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix with me, all right? Here we go. Harry, I, you know, you heard me say beloved earlier. You know what's up, okay? Harry had just kissed his crush, Cho Chang, okay? Uh, and he was talking to his two friends, Ron and Hermione, about it. And this is how the conversation goes down. Ron asks Harry, and he says, how was it? And Harry goes, wet. Because she had been crying, right? And, uh, you know, you, you pick up on the dynamic here of female and male and what is going on in the room. And, and, and Hermione's sitting next to him. And, uh, and so... Ron, uh, he takes a few jabs at Harry, right? He's like, well, you must not be very good at snogging. You'd think that'd cheer her up, you know? Uh, and uh, they have this conversation. And then we get into this awesome dialogue. And this, I have to read this word for word because uh, I got to put on Hermione here for a second. She says to Ron, don't you understand how she must be feeling? Obviously, she's feeling sad about Cedric and therefore confused about liking Harry and guilty for kissing him, conflicted because Umbridge is pushing to sack her mom from the ministry and frightened from failing her owls because she's worried about everything else. And Ron responds, one person couldn't feel all that. They'd explode. <laughs> to which I say, boom, Jesus. Do you see in our text how deeply Jesus feels what is going on with the people around him? Jesus experiences the fullness of all these emotions of what was happening around him, the full range of them, but then he responds in the light and he makes death go away because he felt so deeply what was going on with Mary and Martha. Jesus experienced an angered sense of justice that hated sin and death and disease. Jesus felt compassion for Mary in the midst of her suffering. He felt so much more. Jesus was deeply moved, and this is what drove him to pull her out of her circumstances and make it better. Sacred City, Jesus is not only the author of life who's sovereign over the twists and turns of your story, but he is also the Son of God who put on flesh and dwelt among us. He's the one who entered into our broken world. He's the one who entered into history for one supreme reason. He loves us. Do you see what they said? Do you see how much he loves them? Put this to practice in our lives. Many times when we go through difficult circumstances in our lives, when we face the temporary realities of the fall, our first response is what? Well, Jesus, don't you care? God, don't you care about me over here? We question whether or not God loves us, like the disciples in the boat in the midst of a storm when they say, Jesus, don't you care? Church, I'm here to tell you this morning, we be asking the wrong question. 
God is love. And he sent his son Jesus into this world to live the life that you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserve, and to rise from the grave as the defining act of his great love for you. And here in John chapter 11, Jesus delayed going to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And this had nothing to do with the lack of care for them. Here we see the depth of Jesus' love for them. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe instead of questioning God's love for us, we need to cling to him and ask, what kind of story you be writing in my life right now, God? Because you must be writing a bigger story. You must be having something on the other end of that valley. If you're taking me through this, I need to cling to you, see you for who you are. Let that affect my heart instead of questioning his care for me. He loves us, and it's his love that gives us great hope. All right, let's get, get, get going here. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha's like, man, it's going to stink up in there. She says, uh, that's not what she said. Uh, she says, uh, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Well, she did not have this in mind, I don't think. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I think we're like the people standing around. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. <laughs> that sounds arrogant. I'm just going to say it right there. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, he made plans. They made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Family, Jesus spoke three words. Lazarus, come out, and a dead man started living again. That's the one we worship. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be one of those people who were present at that tomb? Can you imagine what it must have been like? How many times Mary and Martha are getting shaked down at tea, and they're being asked, like, hey, tell me that story one more time, will can you? Can you just tell me what? I just need to hear the details one more time. Can you imagine... How people must have looked at that brother when he was walking down the street. Lazarus just be having a day out in Bethany, you know, walking down the street, headed to the shop, and everybody is just staring at him. I thought you were dead. And now you'd be walking down the street, man. Well, I know we don't have time to get into the ins and outs of this high priest prophecy anymore, so this is where I want to wrap up this morning, okay? People might not stare at you when you walk down the street, 
People might not be aware that this is your story, but each and every one of us who is in Christ, we talked about it just last week. Justin went there in Ephesians chapter two. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We might not have been physically dead, but each and every one of us, if we are in Christ now, has a story, and that story says that we were dead and separated from God, but God made us alive together with Christ. This is our testimony, church. People should be looking at us like that when we walk down the street if we are faithful telling our resurrection story of what God has done in our hearts. That's a part of what it looks like to live on mission. It's to tell people our resurrection stories. And I think that goes beyond just this telling of our personal testimony of when God saved our lives. You see, this this past year, for me, this is what got me this week when I was studying the text. This past year, I got myself into a pretty dark tomb. If y'all don't want to know my story, it's gonna, it would take, we'd have to get a drink and I'd have a whole lot more to tell you, okay, about this story than that. But I got myself into a pretty dark, dark tomb. And when I was in that situation, God didn't answer my prayers the way that I was asking. That's just not how it went. I was crying out and I was asking him for specific things and he, I wasn't getting a yes, all right? I might have been getting a no and I might have gotten a not yet. I was getting some other sort of answer, but it wasn't a yes. And I'm here to testify this morning that when I was sitting in that spot and I was going through hard things, Jesus deeply was moved for me. He loved me in the midst of that. He cared for what I was going through. And after a while, after I'd started learning the discipline of delay a little bit from getting his not yet's or his no's, somewhat as like this church was somewhat of the mouthpiece for this, he said, Scott, come out. It's time for you to start living again. It's time for you to stop living in this victim mindset. It's time for you to let that go and start to be my child and live in the light. I am the resurrection and the life. Church, each and every one of us has a resurrection story. And we need to rehearse these stories over and over again because they're not just meant to give us hope, but they are meant to give hope, to breathe hope into the cities around us. Y'all know this is one of the reasons that God has given us the sacrament of communion, right? Here at Sacred City, we partake in the Lord's Supper weekly. And one of the reasons that we do that is so that we would eat and drink hope into our lives. See, when we remember that the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us, we can be filled with hope knowing that he loves us enough to sacrifice himself in our place. And when we remember that the wine or the juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, we can be filled with hope knowing that his blood will wash away, uh, wash us white as snow no matter what we have done or will do. Church, we need hope. Our city needs hope. And I think God brings us near in moments like this to see how awesome his son is, to see how awesome he is, that he truly is the resurrection and the life, not just so that we would believe that he can raise a dead man from the grave, but so that whatever tomb we find ourselves in, we would know that he is strong enough. He is good enough. He is beautiful enough. He is enough for us to raise us up out of that so that we could preach hope to the people around us. Will you all pray with me? God, we desperately need you to give us hope.
We see in your son this amazing God, man, 100% man and 100% God, one who walked in the muck, got down in the dirt of this world, lived uh, with the temporary realities of death and disease and poverty. But he wasn't just okay with them. He came and he started to redeem those realities already in his time. And he's coming back another day and he's gonna put it all to ends and he's gonna uh, wipe away every tear and he's gonna make all things new. And so God, we ask this morning that you would till up the unbelief in our hearts, that you would help us to see him clearly as the resurrection and the life to put our hope and our trust in him this morning. And God, we ask that you would do the work in our hearts that we cannot do. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask that you would enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Amen.